brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that sends 5% of your monthly plan price to your favorite charity. No contracts, nationwide coverage, risk-free guarantee. Learn more at CharityMobile.com. Blessed Holy Saturday. Normally on a Saturday, I don't put prophetic visions up on this channel. If I do that on a weekend, it's typically on a Sunday, and especially with the subject of ours today, which is Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. I'm actually jumping a little ahead in the collection I have of her works, which were gifted to me by a listener, and I thank you again for that. And the reason I'm jumping ahead is because she has a compelling vision of Holy Saturday in two parts. First, a vision of what happened to the friends of Jesus on the day we mark as Holy Saturday. And the second is of what happened to our blessed Lord when he descended into the fiery pit. If you haven't read these before or heard them, you will find this compelling, I think. Perhaps reflect on them today as we get ready to celebrate the glorious resurrection of our blessed Lord. The Friends of Jesus on Holy Saturday As I have said, I saw yesterday evening the men in the coinoculum celebrating the Sabbath and then taking a repast. They were about twenty in number. They were clothed in long white garments girdled at the waist and were gathered together under a hanging lamp. When they separated after the repast, some went to take their rest in adjoining apartments, others to their own homes. Today I saw most of them remaining quietly in the house, assembling at intervals for prayer and reading and occasionally admitting some newcomer. In the house occupied by the Blessed Virgin, there was a large hall with several little recesses cut off by hangings and movable partitions. These were private sleeping places. When the holy women returned from the sepulchre, they put everything they brought back again into its place and lighted the lamp that was hanging from the center of the ceiling. Then they gathered under it around the Blessed Virgin and took turns in praying most devoutly. They were all in deep sorrow. After that, they took partook of some refreshment, and were soon joined by Martha, Moroni, Dina, and Mary, who, after celebrating the Sabbath in Bethania, had come hither with Lazarus. The last named went to the men in the quinaculum. When, with tears on both sides, the dead and burial of the Lord had been recounted to the newly arrived, and the hour was far advanced, some of the men, among them Joseph of Arimathea, left the supper room, called for the women that wanted to return to their homes in the city, and took their leave. It was on the way that the armed band seized Joseph near the judgment hall of Caiaphas and cast him into the tower. The women who had remained with the Blessed Virgin now retired, each to her own screened sleeping place. They veiled their heads in long linen scarves and sat for a little while in silent grief on the ground, leaning on the sleeping covers that were rolled up against the wall. After some moments they arose, spread out the covers, laid aside their sandals, girdles, and some article of dress, enveloped themselves from head to foot, as they were accustomed to do on retiring to rest, and lay down on their couches for a short sleep. At midnight they rose again, dressed, folded the couch together, assembled once more under the lamp around the Blessed Virgin, and prayed in turn. When the Blessed Virgin and the Holy Women, notwithstanding their great suffering, had discharged this duty of nocturnal prayer, which I have frequently seen practiced since by the faithful children of God and holy persons, either urged thereto by special grace or in obedience to a rule laid down by God and his church, John and some of the disciples knocked at the door of the women's hall. He and the other men had previously prayed, like the women, under the lamp and the quinaculum. 
The holy women were at once enveloped themselves in their mantles along with the Blessed Virgin, followed them to the temple. It was about the same time that the tomb was sealed, that is about three o'clock in the morning, that I saw the Blessed Virgin with the other holy women, John and several of the disciples, going to the temple. It was customary among the ancient peoples to visit the temple at daybreak the morning after eating the Paschal Lamb. It was, in consequence, opened about midnight because the sacrifices on that morning began very early. But today, on account of the disturbance of the feast and the defilement of the temple, everything had been neglected, and it seemed to me as if the Blessed Virgin, with her friends, wanted to take leave of it. It was there that she had been reared. There she had adored the holy mystery, until she herself bore in her womb this, that same holy mystery, that holy one, who, as the true paschal lamb, had been so barbarously immolated the day before. The temple was, according to the custom of this day, open, the lights lighted, and even the vestibule of the priest, a privilege granted to this day, was thrown open to the people. But the sacred edifice, with the exception of a few guards and servants, were quite deserted. Marks of yesterday's disorder and confusion lay everywhere around. It had been defiled by the presence of the dead, and at the sight of it, the thought arose in my mind, how will it ever be restored? Simeon's sons and Joseph of Arimathea's nephews, the latter of whom were very much grieved at the news of their uncle's arrest, welcomed the Blessed Virgin and her companions and conducted them everywhere, for they had the care of the temple. Silently they gazed with mingled feelings of awe and adoration at the work of destruction, the visible marks of God's anger. Only here and there were a few words spoken to recount the events of the preceding day. Yesterday's destruction was evidenced in many different ways, for no attempt at repair had yet been made. Where the vestibule joined the sanctuary, the wall had so given way that a person could easily creep through the fissure, and the hole threatened to fall. The beam above the rent curtain before the sanctuary had sunk. The pillars that supported it had declined from each other at the top, and the curtain, torn in two, hung down at the sides. So great an opening was made in the wall of the vestibule by the huge stone that had been precipitated from the north side of the temple near Simeon's oratory upon the spot on which Zacharias appeared, that the Blessed Virgin could pass through without difficulty. This brought her to the great teacher's chair, from which the boy Jesus had taught, and from this spot she could see through the torn curtain into the Holy of Holies, something that would not have been possible before. Here and there, likewise, walls were cracked, portions of the floor sunk in, beams displaced, and pillars leaning out of their proper direction. The Blessed Virgin visited with her companions all places rendered sacred to her by the presence of Jesus. Kneeling down, she kissed them, recalling with tears and in a few touching words the particular remembrances connected with each. Her companions imitated her example, kneeling and kissing the hallowed spots. The elder brothers regarded with extraordinary reverence all places in which anything held sacred by them had happened. They touched and kissed them, prostrating with their faces upon them, and I could never feel surprised at such manifestations. When one knows and believes and feels the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a living God who dwelt among his people in his temple, his house at Jerusalem, the wonder would be if they did not venerate such places. Whoever believes in a living God, in a father and redeemer and sanctifier of mankind, his children wonders not that, impelled by love, he is still living among the living. He feels that he owes to him and to everything connected with him more love, honor and reverence than to earthly parents, friends, teachers, superiors, and princes. The temple and the holy places were to those people what the most blessed sacrament is to Christians. But there were among them some blind and some enlightened, just as there are among us that, adoring not the living God in our midst, are fallen into the superstitious service of the gods of the world. They reflect not upon these words of Jesus, 
Whoever denies me before men, him also will I deny before my heavenly Father. People that unceasingly serve the spirit and falsehood of the world in thoughts and words and works, that cast aside all exterior worship of God, say indeed, if perchance they have not cast off God himself as to be altogether too exterior for them. We adore God in spirit and in truth. But they do not know that these words mean in the Holy Ghost and in the Son, who took flesh from Mary, the Virgin, and who bore witness to the truth, who lived among us, who died for us on earth, and who will be with his church in the blessed sacrament until the end of time. The blessed Virgin and her companions thus reverently visited many parts of the temple. She showed them where, as a little girl, she had first entered the sacred edifice, and where on the south side she had been educated until her espousals will sit with St. Joseph. She pointed out to them the scene of her marriage, that of Jesus' presentation, and that of Simeon's and Anna's prophecies. At this point she wept bitterly, for the prophecy had been fulfilled. The sword had pierced her soul. She showed where she had found Jesus when a boy teaching in the temple, and she reverently kissed the teacher's chair. They went also to the offering box into which the widow had put her might, and to the spot upon which the Lord forgave the woman taken in adultery. After they had thus, with reverential touching, tears, prayers, and recalling of reminiscences, honored all the places rendered venerable by Jesus' presence, they returned to Sion. The Blessed Virgin did not leave the temple without many tears and deep grief, for its ruins and its desolate aspect on that day, once so sacred, bore witness to the sins of her people. She thought of Jesus weeping over it and of his prophecy, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up again. She thought of how the enemies of Jesus had destroyed the temple of his body, and she longed for the third day upon which that word of eternal truth would be fulfilled. Return to the coinaculum on Sion at daybreak, the Blessed Virgin retired with her companions to her own dwelling on the right of the courtyard. At the entrance, John left them and joined the men in the coinaculum, upwards of twenty in number, who spent the whole Sabbath in the supper room, mourning the death of their master and praying by turns under the lamp. I saw them occasionally and very cautiously admitting newcomers and conferring with them in tears. All experienced an inward reverence for John and a feeling of confusion in his presence, since he had been at the death of the Lord. But John was full of love and sympathy toward them, and simple and ingenuous, ingenuous as a child, he gave place to everyone. Once I saw them eating. They remained very silently together, and the house was closed. They were safe from attack, for the house belonged to Nicodemus, and they hired it for the Paschal Supper. Again I saw the holy women assembled until evening in the hall which was lighted by a lamp, the doors being closed and the windows covered. Sometimes they ranged around the Blessed Virgin under the lamp for prayer, or sometimes they retired alone to their several recesses, enveloped their heads in mourning veils, and sat on flat boxes strewn with ashes, the sign of grief, or prayed with the face turned to the wall. Before they assembled under the lamp for prayer, they always laid aside their mourning veils and left them in the little recesses. I saw also that the weak among them took a little nourishment, but the others fasted. More than once, my gaze was directed to the holy women, and I always saw them just as described, praying or mourning in a darkened hall. When my meditation turned to the Blessed Virgin dwelling in thought upon our Savior, I sometimes saw the holy tomb and about seven guards sitting or standing opposite the entrance. Close to the door of the rocky cave in which was the real tomb, the tomb proper, stood Cassius. He moved not from the spot. He was silent and recollected. I saw the closed doors of the tomb and the stone lying before them, but through the doors I could see the body of the Lord lying just as it had been left. It was environed with light and splendor and rested between two adoring angels, one at the head, the other at the foot. 
When my thoughts turned to the holy soul of our Redeemer, there was vouchsafed me a vision of his descent into perdition so great, so extended, that I have been able to retain only a very small portion. I shall, however, relate what I can of it. Some words on Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich's vision of Christ's descent into hell. When Jesus with a loud cry gave up his most holy soul, I saw it as a luminous figure surrounded by angels, among them Gabriel, penetrating the earth at the foot of the holy cross. I saw his divinity united with his soul, while at the same time it remained united to his body hanging on the cross. I cannot express how this was. I saw the place whither the soul of Jesus went. It seemed to be divided into three parts. It was like three worlds and had and I had a feeling that it was round, and that each one of the, those places was a kind of locality, a sphere separated from the others. Just in front of Limbo, there was a bright, cheerful tract of country clothed in verdure. It is into this that I always see the souls released from purgatory entering before being conducted into heaven. The Limbo in which were the souls awaiting redemption was encompassed by a gray, foggy atmosphere and divided into different circles. The Savior, resplendent and conducted and triumphed by angels, pressed on between two of these circles. The one on the left contained the souls of the leaders of the people down to Abraham, that on the right the souls from Abraham to John the Baptist. Jesus went on between these two circles. They knew him not, but all were filled with joy and ardent desire. It was as if this place of anxious, distressed longing was suddenly enlarged. The Redeemer passed through them like a refreshing breeze, like light, like dew, quickly like the sight of the wind. The Lord passing quickly between these two circles to a dimly lighted place in which were our first parents, Adam and Eve. He addressed them and they adored him in unspeakable rapture. The procession of the Lord, accompanied by the first human beings, now turned to the left, to the limbo of the leaders of God's people before the time of Abraham. This was a species of purgatory, for here and there were evil spirits, who in manifold ways worried and distressed some of those souls. The angels knocked and demanded admittance. There was an entrance because there was an going in, a gate because there was an unlocking and a knocking, because the one that was coming had to be announced. It seemed to me that I heard the angel call out, Open the gates! Open the doors! Jesus entered in triumph, while the wicked spirits retired, crying out, What hast thou to do with us? What dost thou want here? Art thou now going to crucify us? And so on. The angels bound them and drove them before them. The souls in this place had only a vague idea of Jesus. They knew him only slightly, but when he told them clearly who he was, they broke forth into songs of praise and thanksgiving. And now the soul of the Lord turned to the circle on the right, to limbo proper. There he met the soul of the good thief going under the escort of angels into Abraham's bosom, while the bad thief encompassed by demons was being dragged into perdition. The soul of Jesus addressed some words to both, and then, accompanied by a multitude of angels, of the redeemed and by those demons that were driven out of the first circle, went likewise into the bosom of Abraham. This space or circle appeared to me to lie higher than the other. It was as if a person climbed from the earth under the churchyard, up into the church itself, the evil spirits struggled in their chains and wanted not to enter, but the angels forced them on. In this second circle were all the holy Israelites to the left, the patriarchs, Moses, the judges, the kings, on the right, the prophets, and all the ancestors of Jesus, as also his relatives down to Joachim, Anne, Joseph, Zachary, Elizabeth, and John. There were no demons in this circle, no pain, nor torment, 
only the ardent longing for the fulfillment of the promise now realized. Unspeakable felicity and rapture inundated these souls as they saluted and adored the Redeemer, and the demons in their fetters were forced to confess before them their ignominious defeat. Many of the souls were sent up to resuscitate their bodies from the tomb, and in them to render ocular testimony to the Lord. This was the moment in which so many dead came forth from their tombs in Jerusalem. They looked to me like walking corpses. They laid their bodies again upon the earth, just as a messenger of justice lays aside his mantle of office after having fulfilled his superior's commands. I now saw the Savior's triumphant procession entering into another sphere lower than the last. It was the abiding place of pious pagans, who, having had some presentment of truth, had ardently sighed after it. It was a kind of purgatory, a place of purification. There were evil spirits here, for I saw some idols. I saw the evil spirits compelled to confess the deception they had practiced. I saw the blessed spirits rendering homage to the Savior with touching expressions of joy. Here, too, the demons were chained by the angels and driven forward before them. And thus I saw the Redeemer passing rapidly through these numerous abodes and freeing the souls therein confined. He did a great many other things, but in my present miserable state I am unable to relate them. At last I saw him, his countenance grave and se severe, approaching the center of the abyss, namely hell itself. In shape it looked to me like an immeasurable vast, frightful black stone building that shone with a metallic luster. Its entrance was guarded by immense, awful-looking doors, black like the rest of the building, and furnished with bolts and locks and inspired feelings of terror. Roaring and yelling most horrible could plainly be heard, and when the doors were pushed open, a frightful, gloomy world was disclosed to view. As I am accustomed to see the heavenly Jerusalem under the form of a city, and the abodes of the blessed therein under various kinds of palaces and gardens, full of wonderful fruits and flowers, all according to the different degrees of glory, so here I saw everything under the appearance of a world whose buildings, open spaces, and various regions were all closely connected. But all proceeded from the opposite of happiness. All was pain and torment. As in the sojourns, the blessed all appears formed upon motives and conditions of infinite peace, eternal harmony and satisfaction. So here are the disorder, the malformation of eternal wrath, disunion, and despair. As in heaven, there are innumerable abodes of joy and worship, unspeakably beautiful in their glittering transparency. So here in perdition are gloomy prisons without number, caves of torment, of cursing and despair. As in heaven there are gardens most wonderful to behold, filled with fruits that afford divine nourishment. So here in perdition there are horrible wildernesses and swamps full of torture and pain, and all that can give birth to feelings of detestation, of loathing, and of horror. I saw here temples, altars, palaces, thrones, gardens, lakes, streams, all formed of blasphemy, hatred, cruelty, despair, confusion, pain, and infliction. While in heaven all is built up of benedictions, of love, harmony, joy, and delight, here is the rending, eternal disunion of the condemned. There is the blissful communion of the saints. All the roots of perversity and untruth are here cultivated in countless forms and deeds of punishment and affliction. Nothing here is right. No thought brings peace, for the terrible remembrance of divine justice casts every condemned soul into the pain and torment that his own guilt has planted for him. All that is terrible here, both in appearance and reality is the nature, the form, the fury of sin unmasked, the serpent that now turns against those on whose bosom it was once nourished. I saw there also frightful calms erected for the sole purpose of creating feelings of horror, just as in the kingdom of God they are intended to inspire peace and sentiment of blissful rest, etc. All this is easily understood, but I cannot express in detail.
When the gates were swung open by the angels, one beheld before him a struggling, blaspheming, mocking, howling, and lamenting throng. I saw that Jesus spoke some words to the soul of Judas. Some of the angels forced that multitude of evil spirits to prostrate before Jesus, for all had to acknowledge and adore him. This was for them the most terrible torment. A great number were chained in a circle around others who were in turn bound down by them. In the center was an abyss of darkness. Lucifer was cast into it, chained, and thick black vapor mounted up around him. This took place by the divine decree. I heard that Lucifer, if I did not mistake, will be freed again for a while fifty or sixty years before the year 2000. I have forgotten many other dates that were told to me. Some other demons are to be freed before Lucifer in order to chastise and tempt mankind. I think that some are let loose now in our own day, and others will be freed shortly after our time. It is impossible for me to relate all that was shown me. It is too much. I cannot reduce it to order. I cannot arrange it. I am also dreadfully sick. When I try to speak of these things, I rise up before my eyes, and the sight is enough to make one die. I saw, too, the redeemed souls in countless numbers, leaving the places of their purification, leaving limbo, and accompanying the soul of the Lord to a place of bliss before the heavenly Jerusalem. It was there that some time ago I saw a deceased friend of mine. The soul of the good thief entered with the rest and again saw the Lord, according to his promise in paradise. I saw prepared here for the delight and refreshment of the soul celestial tables, such as were often shown me in visions vouchsafed for my consolation. I cannot say exactly the time of these events nor their duration, neither can I repeat all that I saw and heard, because some things were incomprehensible even to myself, and others would be misunderstood. I saw the Lord in many different places, even in the seas. It seemed as if he sanctified and delivered every creature. Everywhere the evil spirits fled before him into the abyss. Then I saw the soul of the Lord visiting many places on the earth. I saw him in Adam's tomb under Golgotha. The souls of Adam and Eve came again to him there. He conversed with them, and I saw him as if under the earth, going with them in many directions, visiting the tomb after tomb of the prophets. Their souls entered their bodies, and Jesus explained many mysteries to them. Then I saw him with his chosen band, among whom was David, visiting many scenes of his own life and passion, explaining to them the typical events that had taken place, and with an inexpressible love pointing out to them their fulfillment. Among other places, I saw him with these souls at that of his baptism, where numerous figures events had happened. He explained them all, and, deeply touched, I beheld the everlasting mercy of Jesus in permitting the grace of his own holy baptism to flow upon them for greater advantage. It was unspeakably touching to see the soul of the Lord encompassed by those happy, blessed spirits shining through the dark earth, through rocks, through the water and the air, and lightly floating over the surface of the ground. These are the few points that I can remember of my meditations, so full, so extended upon the descent of the Lord into perdition after his death, and of his releasing the souls of the just patriarchs of the earliest times. But besides this vision relating to time, I saw one connected with eternity, in which I was shown his mercy toward the poor souls of this day. I saw that every year on the solemn celebration of this day, Good Friday by the Church, he casts upon purgatory a glance by which many souls are released. I saw that even today, Holy Saturday, upon which day I had this contemplation, he released from their place of purification some souls that had sinned at the time of his crucifixion. I saw today the release of many souls, some unknown and others known to me, though I cannot name any of them. The first ascent of Jesus into limbo was the fulfillment of early types, and in itself a type whose fulfillment is affected by today's release of the poor souls. 
The descent into hell that I saw was a vision of time past, but the freeing of the souls today is an everlasting truth. The descent of Jesus into perdition was the planting of the tree of grace, the tree of his own sacred merits for the poor souls, and the constant reoccurrence of today's releasing of those souls into the fruit brought forth by that tree of grace in the spiritual garden of the ecclesiastical year. The church militant must cultivate the tree and gather the fruits, in which the church suffering must be allowed to share, since it can do nothing for itself. So it is with all the merits of the Lord. We must labor with him in order to share in them. We must eat our bread in the sweat of our brow. All that Jesus did for us in time brings forth fruit for eternity. But we must in time cultivate and gather that fruit. Otherwise, we shall not enjoy it in eternity. The church is a most provident mother. Her year is in time the most complete garden of fruits for eternity. Her year contains a supply of sufficient for the wants of all. Woe to the slothful and faithless laborers in that garden, who in any way allow to go to waste a grace that might have restored the health to the sick, strength to the weak, or furnished food to the hungry. On the day of judgment, the master of the garden will demand an account of even the least blade of grass. And that is the vision or visions of Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, of what happened to the apostles and to the disciples of our Lord who stayed loyal to him after the events of Good Friday, and of our Lord's descent into the land of the dead. You know, it's curious that uh, they've announced the sequel to The Passion is coming, and Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich's visions were an inspiration for some of the de- actual, we'll call them extra-biblical details in the original film. And the sequel is apparently going to focus in large part on the descent of our Lord into the land of the dead. And I'm curious if you think you're going to see the events that I just described here in that film. I'm curious if you also feel as I do that maybe there should be an informal tradition that starts where on Holy Saturday... We behave as if it was November, the Feast of All Souls and All Saints, where in that octave we pray for the repose of the souls of the dead, that perhaps on Holy Saturday we should do the same. Although I am a believer, we should do it every day. But perhaps there should be a new tradition, if you want to call it as such, where on Holy Saturday we pray for the repose of the souls of the dead because of this release of souls from purgatory on Holy Saturday. Let me know what you think of this in the comments, please. Like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help, as does sharing this on social media. That helps a lot, too. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.